You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. As you're getting to Hebrews chapter 8, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is many things. The Good Shepherd the bridegroom, the light of the world, the bread of life, the chief cornerstone, our rock, our redeemer, our deliverer, our savior, the risen Lord of all, the king of kings, but only the book of Hebrews. This sermon offered in the form of a letter declares that Jesus is our priest, our great high priest, as you'll see on the slide. This unique concept is the central message of Hebrews. It's the main idea in many ways from which everything else in this letter flows. According to the priesthood, the author, we've already heard that the priesthood is the purpose for which the word became flesh. The priesthood is the reason why we should not let go but hold fast to our faith in Christ. And as we learned last Sunday, as we closed out chapter 7, the distinctively superior priesthood of Jesus replaces the former Levitical sacrificial system. And today, as we begin to read chapter 8, Hebrews continues to explore Jesus' particular work as our great high priest, specifically what Jesus offers us, what Jesus has done and continues to do for us as our mediator, as our intercessor. With that introduction, let's read these opening verses from Hebrews chapter 8. They're on the screen. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one to also have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you heard, this passage begins by pointing back and basically repeating the argument of the previous chapter. So let's briefly remind ourselves of that argument. Let's set the table once again. What we've learned is the former Levitical priesthood, men from the tribe of Levi who represented the people before God and God before the people, their representation consisting of mediating atonement for all the sins of the people, including their own, as a part of the community. They, through a series of visceral, daily offerings and sacrifices, consisting of both the harvest and the livestock that marked the everyday lives of the people, they, through these offerings and sacrifices, mediated the problem of sin. All the things that we do wrong, in contradiction to God's rules for life, the things we do willfully, 
The things we do accidentally, even the things we do unconsciously, unknowingly, were addressed through this sacrificial system, covered and cleansed. But the thing is, all those generations of Levitical priests who were just as flawed, just as in need of grace as the rest of us are, all their repeated offerings and sacrifices could never fully and completely deal with the reality and the long-term consequences of human sin. And so the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system were always meant to be temporary, to lay the groundwork for something else, to lay the groundwork for someone else. And here in chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews underscores this point when he speaks of the work of the priest in the tabernacle in the wilderness and later in the temple in Jerusalem as being a shadow or a copy of the heavenly realm to come. They pointed to something else. When we think of this idea of something being a shadow or a copy of the reality, one helpful way I like to think about it is in the church office, we have some old copies of the building plans for this sanctuary. There was a time when those plans were necessary. Those plans, if you will, served as the law for how this building would be made. Those plans outlined a picture of what this sanctuary would look like before it was constructed so we had some idea of what to expect. But now that this building has come, now that we have this sanctuary, it is not necessary for us to remain fixated to keep laboring over those plans. Instead, we ought to occupy and live out of the building to which those plans always pointed. In the same way, the writer is arguing the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial law, the temple established a pattern for us. All those precise instructions, all those intricately detailed practices recorded in the book of Leviticus, all those graphic displays of blood and death were a pattern by which our creator was teaching us to recognize just how precarious our existence is, just how broken we are. The former sacrificial law was designed to instill within us a sensitivity about what redemption actually costs, what reconciliation involves, as well as providing a proper understanding of how atonement is made. That word atonement comes up a lot in this letter. We talked about it last week. Atonement, this idea of how everything gets made right in the world. Atonement, this idea of how we can attain perfection. Perfection in the sense of wholeness, completeness in our relationship with God, in our relationship with ourselves, in our relationship with each other. Atonement is not something we can make. Atonement, we learn through this system of sacrifices and offerings, is not us about us making amends for the wrongs we've done and making things right. Because all we can offer is what we were supposed to have given God to ourselves and to each other in the first place. Being imperfect, we can't perfect ourselves, but we can be perfected. Biblically, atonement is something made for us, something done to and through us by God. The old covenant presented, the presented through the tabernacle and later the temple was designed as a pattern and a copy to prepare us, to point us to the reality of the new covenant, God making atonement for us in Jesus Christ. The Levitical priesthood, all the offerings and the sacrifices were but a shadow of the eternal, 
perfect priesthood of God in Jesus Christ come down from heaven in order to offer the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And the writer alludes to this declaration he already made back in chapter 7 here when he speaks of this. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. This one is Jesus. Every priest, as we learned last week, had to bring an offering to the altar of God. And the priests of old brought rams and goats and bulls and grains and oil. Jesus, like the priests of old, has something to offer too. And yet the priesthood of Jesus is distinctive. It is better. It is superior because Jesus offers himself. For themselves or for the people they represented, the priests of old had really nothing to offer Nothing to give beyond what they were already given by God. They offered back, if you think about it, they offered back to God what belonged to God in the first place. But the gospel, the new covenant, is that when, because of sin, something still had to give and we had nothing to offer, God came down in the flesh in in Jesus Christ and gave us himself. Our creator took on our humanity to become both our priest and our sacrifice. And Hebrews is going to unpack the significance of that last statement in the chapters to follow. But for now, the point is this. Jesus Christ, who as our great high priest, didn't need to make an offering for himself in order to be there for us, nonetheless offered us what no other priest could or can. A willing, perfect sacrifice unnecessary for him, but completely needed by us. Jesus placed on heaven's altar the deepest possible sacrifice, his pure, innocent life bearing the full weight of the pain, the suffering, the evil, all the sin, all the brokenness of the human condition. That is what he willingly embraced on the cross. All that is wrong with us, placed on his shoulders, on everything that is right and good, which he is. And as a result, Jesus achieves in this once-for-all sacrifice what all the other previous sacrifices pointed to, but which they could never collectively, let alone individually, achieve. As the writer of Hebrews has already told us, Christ saves us completely. Christ redeems us fully. And that is why the writer of this letter stresses that Jesus is the culmination of the old covenant, the old sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood, the temple, the old system of making daily sacrifices and shedding blood is not to be repeated because those sacrifices do not need to be repeated. No more blood needs to be spilled because Christ is the reality that has replaced the shadows. The audience to whom this letter was first being written is, in other words, being encouraged to distinguish between the shadow and the reality. They need to stop clinging to the copy, the old priesthood, the daily offerings and sacrifices, and the temple. And instead, they need to take hold of and live out of the real thing, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked about this a lot in this letter. Our context today is so much different than theirs. We do not deal in temples. We don't deal in sacrifices and offerings of rams and blood and guts and all that stuff. Our context today is totally different than theirs. And yet, 
This letter continues to be relevant because like them, we too need to distinguish between the shadow and the reality. Like them, we can struggle with holding on to other stuff in the church rather than embracing and living out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, to be honest, when I first wrote this sermon, this was the point in the message when the application was going to be, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I don't know if you know if you've heard this before, it's a very popular mantra these days, and I will confess that I have used it a few times myself right from this very pulpit. However, that was where I was going to go. However, in continuing to reflect and pray on this message, which is always a good idea, by the way, because it's not about what I want to say, the message of the book of Hebrews in total, this passage, the Bible as a whole, as I prayed and reflected on that, it became clear that while this saying is very catchy and very even appealing, it is not entirely true. The idea of Christianity as a religion being opposed to a relationship with Christ is a false dichotomy. And I want to break this down for you. So bear with me. When we talk about religion, the idea of religion, at its essence, a religion, any religion, is a group of people adhering to a particular set of beliefs and practices. Based on that definition, in that sense, All people are religious in some way, in that we all adhere to particular beliefs and practices that shape our lives, that shape what we talk about, that shape where our focus is, that shape how we engage our time, energy, and the resources we have. Biblically, we are all religious in the sense that we are who or what we worship, We all look for purpose and meaning in our lives. And in that universal quest, we all devote ourselves. We all inevitably submit our focus, our time, our energy, ourselves to something or to someone. Whatever or whoever that is, is the object of our worship. It is the basis of our religion. And we exercise our religion through rituals. Our daily rituals are the actions that point to what we ultimately hold as the best and truest thing in existence. They point to what matters the most to us. Sports fans are religious. They are zealous in following their favorite teams. They idolize their favorite players. Their choice of language is not unintentional. They faithfully attend either live or via media their team's every performance. And if sports isn't your thing, we could apply the same idea of religiosity to the realm of music and the arts as well. And let's just even go beyond that. How many of us are devoted to our electronic devices religiously? Just think how much of your average day you engage, how much you identify, how much you express yourself, how much of you is dictated by that little pocket God that you carry around. Whether it's media posts on social media, letting people know you're out there and what you're doing, or whether it's selfies that you take all the time, or whether it's apps that drive your life by which your whole life centers around, because there's an app for that, or whether it's the fact that all of your content, all of your life is in one place, those little pocket gods can become our religion. I would even say even so-called atheists 
who reject the notion of religion are in fact as religious as they may claim to be rational. In that atheism, like all religions, is driven again by a particular set of beliefs and practices. Insisting that nothing created everything while craving community and seeking to practice morality is being religious. So the thing is, we can be religious even if we religiously deny that we're not religious. The key is where does your religion, whatever it is, take you? To what, to whom does it ultimately lead? And where that religion takes you, is it true or is it false? Can it deliver on what it promises? I'm going to push this a step further. Bear with me. Everyone has a relationship with God. Everyone has a relationship with God. Idolatry, giving the highest level of our attention, our priority, our submission, our worship to anything other than the creator itself is a posture of religion towards God, a posture of relationship towards God. One might argue the religion we practice is a reflection of our relationship with God. The problem has never been that we lack a relationship with our creator. The problem has always been that our relationship with God is either hostile, indifferent, or engaged. Those are the three ways that we DTR the relationship with God. Hostile, indifferent, or engaged. But interestingly, the Bible only declares two ways of defining one's relationship with God. We either stand in rebellion and rejection of God, or we stand reconciled to God in Christ. Something interesting, the Apostle Paul later on, when he writes, he didn't write Hebrews, but writes elsewhere, he doesn't call us to be in relationship to God in Christ. Paul is very specific in saying this, be reconciled to God in Christ. Because everyone has a relationship with God. There's no middle ground biblically. There's no apathy. We're either engaged in our relationship with God or we have divorced ourselves from that relationship with God. And what's interesting is it's worth noting rebellion and rejection are are our choice. Rebellion and rejection are how we can define the relationship with God. On the other hand, being reconciled to God is God's choice. What the Lord desires, what the Lord wills, what God makes possible for us by coming down in the person of Jesus Christ. This is back again to what atonement means biblically. It's God's choice, not ours, because we can't reconcile ourselves to God. Only God can choose to reconcile himself to us. What only God can make possible and does in Christ is the invitation that we then can choose to accept or to reject. And in many ways, when you think about it, conversion, what we call conversion, coming to and yielding to Christ is the transition between these two states, rebellion and rejection to being reconciled to God. To bring this little reflection on relationship and religion full circle, let me just add one more thing. Of those who know him, and not everyone does, but of those who know of him, everyone also has a relationship with Jesus Christ. We often speak, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And here's the thing. Everyone who knows of Jesus has a relationship with Jesus Christ. The devil has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate had a relationship with Jesus Christ. The question is whether that relationship we have with Jesus is on his terms or ours. 
To put this another way, is our religion based on our relationship with Jesus? Or are we trying to have a relationship with Jesus while we are practicing a different religion? While you chew on that for a bit, let's look more closely at a declaration that the writer of Hebrews makes here. He's made it about a few times about Jesus already, but we haven't really explored it yet in this sermon series. It's this, this idea that, as you'll see on the screen, that Jesus is our mediator. It says here, Jesus has received, is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. And back in chapter 7 and earlier than that, this idea of Jesus as our mediator has been presented to us. This begs the question, what is a mediator? What is a mediator? If Jesus is our mediator, what is a mediator? Well, we step back, and in most instances from our understanding, particularly when we think in terms of legal conflicts, that term mediator describes someone who settles disputes between two parties who cannot come to an agreement. The mediator keeps the dispute neutral and serves as an acceptable negotiator and message bearer for both sides. The mediator seeks the best interests or the best compromise for all involved, ideally at a lower cost to both sides. That's our human understanding of a mediator. When we think mediator, that's what we think about. But here's the thing. In Hebrews, as we're going to continue to see, and throughout the revelation of Scripture as a whole, Jesus is presented as an entirely different kind of mediator. Entirely different kind of mediator. First of all, when we think about Jesus as our mediator, contrary to how some want to frame it, Understanding Christ as our mediator doesn't mean the two opposing parties Jesus stands between are sinful humanity and a holy God as if our creator stands in opposition to us. This doesn't jive because after all, the mystery and marvel of the incarnation is God coming down to us in Christ, not standing apart from us, but taking on our humanity to be with us and for us. And yet we've often perpetuated in the church that Jesus as a mediator stands between sinful humanity and a God who just won't have it. But the reality is the incarnation is about God coming down to be with us and for us, not staying at a distance. On the cross, it is God in Christ who does not turn his face away, but suffers and dies for us. So who are the two parties that Jesus mediates dispute between? It's not between God and sinful humanity. The two parties in dispute Jesus mediates are between the two postures of relationship we can have with God that I just spoke about earlier. Jesus mediates with that posture of rebellion and opposition that we can have towards God on the one hand and that posture of seeking and submission on the other. Another way to say this is Jesus comes to reconcile the tension we all live with that when it comes to our being all that God created us to be, we, like Paul once wrote, struggle with this, that we do not understand what we do, that what we want to do, we do not do, but what we hate, we do. Jesus mediates between the divided self that we have when it comes to our relationship with God, the part that rejects and rebels this God, and yet at the same time, this part that seeks something greater than ourselves. And the other thing why Jesus is different as any other kind of mediator is unlike a, medi a typical mediator, Jesus doesn't just meet us in the middle. Again, God doesn't shy away from us. God in Christ comes all the way to where we are as we are, broken, 
flawed, helpless. And for those who still want to persist, and it's theology that's out there. So some of you are maybe really are having an argument with me in your mind. For those of us who want to persist, no, a holy God could not and cannot have anything to do with broken sinners like us. Let us remember that Jesus throughout his earthly ministry did not remain ceremonially clean. He mingled with tax collectors, with zealots, with prostitutes and pagans. He dared to touch lepers, the impaired, and even the dead. God in Christ allowed himself to risk being defiled, to be contaminated by our unholiness. My friends, God in Christ meets us where we are, not from a distance, but from where we are. But God in Christ, Jesus is our mediator, refuses to leave us as we are. In other words, as our mediator, Jesus doesn't simply negotiate the most acceptable or palatable solution we can afford. Through the cross, Jesus affords us the final solution to the problem of sin. Forgiveness that bears a cost we cannot cover. Mercy that makes an offering we cannot achieve or earn on our own. The selfless giving of his perfect unblemished, willingly, lovingly offered life, not just for us, but for all the world. And through the resurrection, what the writer of Hebrews called back in chapter 7, the power of his indestructible life, Jesus, as our mediator, offers us more than a compromise we can live with. Mediators, in our understanding, try to come up with a compromise that we can live with. But Jesus, as our mediator, doesn't give us a compromise that we can live with. Through his resurrection, Jesus brings life to the dead. Jesus extends to us a life beyond death itself, a hope and a future for tomorrow, for full, abundant, and everlasting life that we can begin to experience today. And all this brings us back to that notion again of a religion versus a relationship. Once again, to restate this, we're all religious in some way. Every action we take is an act of worship. Our rituals reveal our religion. We all have a relationship with God one way or the other. The question again is this, Is our relationship with God the basis of our religion? What we believe, where we focus and prioritize, how we make decisions and interact with the world, or are we practicing a religion that is based on rituals but lacks the relationship? You see, the Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was written were trying to find satisfaction in the rituals of their faith without engaging the relationships to which those rituals pointed. They were fixated on the copy, the shadow, and were missing where the former sacrificial system, including the Levitical priesthood and the temple, were intended to lead them to Jesus Christ. And my friends, in a similar way, our tendency can be to go through the ritual motions of our faith in Christ, to pray, to sing, to read and study our Bible, to engage in local service projects, to attend church services, to come up for Holy Communion, to go on mission trips. We can go through the ritual motions of our faith without ever really engaging the one who seeks to encounter us, who promises to mediate his presence, his wisdom, his guidance to us through such actions. It doesn't take much for us to become overly fixated on the rituals 
of the religion we call Christianity. Think about it. How easily we can get fixated on the rituals of the religion we call Christianity. We can get fixated on the kind of songs we sing and who's leading them. We can get fixated on the kind of prayers we pray and how are they structured. Is it a written prayer? Because that's not a real prayer. Is it a spontaneous prayer? Because that's the real deal. It can get fixated on the rituals of our relationship. How we practice baptism. Been sprinkled? Doesn't count. Got to get dunked. We can get fixated on how we receive communion. Is it intention? That's just rip and dip, man. It's got to be on my knees at the rail all the way. We can get fixated on the rituals of this religion we call Christianity. What translation of the Bible are we reading? Because if it ain't New King James, it ain't real. It ain't legit. We can get fixated on the rituals of the length and style of the sermon, the length and style of the service, what the pastor is wearing or not wearing, what we are wearing or not wearing, where we are serving, who we are serving, how we are serving. We can get so overly fixated on the rituals of this religion we call Christianity and find ourselves never, never reflecting on where Jesus is present, how Christ is being represented, how the Spirit is leading and informing what we are doing. And I can't miss this opportunity as we are having right now a conversation about possibly moving to a single combined service to ask all of you, not just for my sake, and I've been pretty upfront. I believe this is the direction the Lord's leading us, but I'm not making this decision on my own. But what I want to ask all of us is by all means, express yourself. Let us know. Let me know what your preferences are. Let me know the rituals you like and the rituals you don't. But please, somewhere in the midst of all of that, talk to each other. Talk to me about where in the midst of what we are doing, of what we might do together, where Jesus is present or not. How Christ is being represented or not how the Spirit is leading and informing what we are doing or not. Because that's the relationship that our religion is based on. Guys, some of you here, and this is not exclusive to our community, this is rampant within the church, some of us here know more about the rituals, the traditions you grew up with, the religious practices you prefer, you know more about this than you know about the content of God's Word and the experience of the Holy Spirit. And I'm asking you, does that seem right to you? Does that somehow seem backwards? That you know more about what you prefer, you know more about the tradition you come from than you know about the content of what God has given us in his word. The, the presence of his spirit, those are both things that God gives us. You know less about that and you know more about the stuff we've created. The stuff we've developed. That's not balanced. That's not healthy. That's not right. Guys, the rituals by themselves are not the relationship. All the rituals, and I want you to hear this, rituals are not bad. I'm not bashing on rituals. We need rituals. Rituals help us to live in to our relationships. But the rituals are intended exactly to lead us into that relationship with Christ. Guys, rituals without relationship is a religion based on performance, not grace. Rituals without relationship become a straitjacket of rules and regulations we are trying to obey in order to prove ourselves to Jesus rather than exercising those practices as a means of being in the presence of the one who comes to make us alive. 
to raise us from the dead long before we end up in the grave. Rituals without relationship cause us to focus on the right, the correct execution of what we are doing, rather than abiding in what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing for us. I think part of the reason we can end up just performing the rituals and missing the relationship with Jesus is because we so often think and talk of Jesus' work for us as being past tense. Christ died for us. Jesus was risen for us. Jesus did his part, so now it's our part. We've been forgiven, we've been saved, but where we go from here, we've got to pull ourselves up together, we've got to straighten ourselves out, the rest is up to us. And if that's your mindset, here's my question, how's that working out for you? I cannot tell you how many Christians, followers of Jesus, I counsel, I encounter, who believe that Jesus died for us. Jesus rose from the dead. We are forgiven. We are saved. And yet are in this anemic, dark place of just struggling because they're not experiencing any of this, this, this full, abundant, flourishing, everlasting life. And when I talk to them, it always comes back to the same thing. You know what? I'm trying and I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm trying this and I'm trying that and I just can't make it happen. Bingo! That's right. You can't make it happen. You can't do it. That's how we ended up here in the first place. You can't do it. But if you continue to look at the rituals as being the religion, Rather than the rituals leading us into the relationship that's the basis of our religion, this is where you will remain stuck. Guys, notice that the writer of Hebrews, in the midst of our thinking that the work of Jesus is past tense, done, declares something radically different. He alludes to it here, but go back to chapter 7. As Jesus said, as, as Hebrews says, while Jesus finished the sacrificial aspect of his ministry, Christ's perfect and final sacrifice has been offered once for all, as you'll see on the slide. Jesus remains nonetheless an active priest. Jesus keeps mediating on our behalf. I want you to think about that for a second. That is a stunning, startling declaration. Jesus is still mediating on your behalf and mine. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is making constant intercession for us laboring within our divided selves, continually shaping the works in progress that we are so that we would believe and receive, so that we would be transformed and live out of the truth of his finished work for us. Our forgiveness, our redemption, our salvation, our resurrection, our hope. Hear this. In the midst of our setbacks and struggles, and there's nothing wrong with setbacks and struggles. We all have them. We all will. In the midst of our setbacks and our struggles, in the midst of our questions and our doubts, and there's nothing wrong with those either. We all have questions. We will all have doubts. In the midst of our setbacks and our struggles, our questions and our doubts, Jesus intercedes through the word and by the spirit, reminding us and assuring us of our identity in him that we are his beloved and that nothing, as we confessed in the creed, nothing in all creation can separate us from his love. Jesus continues to intercede for us, bringing good out of evil, 
redeeming both our mistakes and our failures. And we will have, make mistakes. We will have failures. Jesus continues to intercede to bring good out of the evil that we do as well as to bring good out of the injustices and wrongs done to us. Jesus continues to intercede for us, calling us forward, guiding us through the valleys, through the mountains, through the unexpected turns that this life will take. Jesus continues to intercede for us, reaching out to us when we get lost or fall away, prompting and leading us back towards home to the place he has prepared for us in our Father's house, a full, abundant, and everlasting life. Guys, on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus did not say he was finished. Jesus remains our intercessor. Christ continues to minister to us. Hear that. Hear that today. Press into that relationship. Jesus clears away all the obstacles that get between us and him. Jesus opens up the doors we tend to close. Jesus clears out all the junk we insist on carrying and assures us that it is quite all right for us to come before the throne of grace. Jesus empowers us to follow him, to go deeper and wider with him. Do you have that relationship with Jesus? Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you experienced what I'm talking about? Here's the thing. You don't know what I'm talking about. You won't experience what I'm talking about if you continue to practice rituals and miss the relationship. To experience this work of Christ that I've just described, to get to know Jesus in this way, this way that he wants to be known. We can't just be performing rituals for Christ. You can't just read your Bible and study your Bible and pray and sing and come to communion and attend church service so you can notch it on your belt. What a good Christian I am. I did my good Christian deed for the day. We cannot just perform rituals for Christ. If we want to experience this work of Christ, if we want to get to know Jesus in this way, then we must exercise these practices of our faith as the means to cultivate an active, vibrant, and maturing relationship with Christ. A relationship with Jesus, by the way, that is not by ourselves. It's not Jesus and me. These rituals are intended to lead us into a relationship with Christ and his body. All of us together. Beloved, you and I, we, we are the temple of God. There is no earthly temple anymore because if you keep reading in chapter 8, as he's going to quote Jeremiah, which we'll talk about on Ash Wednesday, the new covenant is the removal of the shadow of the old temple because the new temple, don't get confused about heaven, the new temple is here. We are the temple of God and our great high priest, Jesus Christ, dwells in us and continues to intercede for us through the Holy Spirit. So what do you say? Let's embrace Let's embrace the promise and the fulfillment of all we were created to be. Let us embrace the promise and the fulfillment of all that we hope to become, not through the performance of Christian rituals, but by engaging the relationships, the relationship beyond the rituals of our faith. Active, ongoing, transformative relationship we can have with Jesus Christ.